Hello, you are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experience the history of Carnegie Mellon University. These interviews do not just inform listeners of the event's histories, they tell the story of how the events were experienced. The pictures get picked up by the wire services, and actually Time Magazine published the picture as well. And letters are coming in addressed to me because my name was out there, you know, you marshmallow brained idiots at Carnegie Mellon, how dare you treat the senator this way? You don't deserve to be in college, you know. With this podcast, we will look at the different pathways students and faculty take to navigate their experiences in higher education. This will be an honest look at higher education, exploring themes of culture and equality, as well as catalytic points of personal growth technological innovation, and creative development. It was everything, chess, uh, wearable computers, operating systems, word processors, Wi-Fi, architectures. It was everywhere there was like excitement and everywhere there was almost something new every day. So you were always like surrounded by discoveries, by novelty. Each recorded history is full of funny anecdotes, follies, triumphs, hidden connections, and occasionally, in-the-moment realizations. So tag along as we talk to the people who make Carnegie Mellon possible. Welcome to the very first episode of Cut Pathways. We have over 40 hours of interviews, And one thing we noticed is that everyone talks about what it was like to be in Pittsburgh in the 20th century. So, let's picture Pittsburgh in the 1930s. The city was an industrial powerhouse, casting the steel that built America while letting its byproducts fill the city's atmosphere. Anita Newell and her family moved to Pittsburgh around this time. Let's hear her first impressions. I was born in Virtugeni, Moldova, Romania. Well, we are Jewish people, and uh, living in Romania, uh, fortunately, we did not have any of the terrible things that were happening in the 30s. Also, fortunately, my mother had uh, three sisters and two brothers, all of whom had come to this country, starting off in Pittsburgh, as a matter of fact. And uh, finally, we were the last family on my mother's side who were told to come to Pittsburgh to the U.S. And they made all the arrangements for us, fortunately, right before the Second World War. Uh, Here in Pittsburgh, we lived in a place which became known to us and is still known as the Hill District. And at the time that we came, the Hill District was well known for all the immigrants who lived there. And uh, it was a lot of them, many, many of them were 
recently arrived Jewish immigrants too. So somehow there was a comfortable feeling, even though most of the people had come from this place and that place from all over. What you're hearing is an excerpt from an interview with Anita Newell, conducted in 2017. Newell studied library science at Margaret Morrison Carnegie College at Carnegie Institute of Technology, and she received her master's in library science from Columbia University. She worked as a librarian at Westinghouse Research Laboratories for more than 30 years. When we say, where are you from? And they say, Pittsburgh. And I say, okay, which little town from Pittsburgh are you in? Anything that's in within a 50 mile radius of New York City is New York City. And so I think that anything within a 50 mile radius of Pittsburgh, you're a Pittsburgher. No matter if you're from Coriopolis Heights or Sewickley or Aspenwall or Fox Chapel or Braddock or Homestead or what, there are a lot of famous Pittsburghers. That's Vivian Davidson Hewitt, Pittsburgh's first African-American librarian. She would go on to be awarded the honorary title of Dame by Queen Elizabeth II, but as a child, she grew up in Newcastle before attending Carnegie Tech. Well, Pittsburgh was an entirely different city then than it is now. Smoke, steel was the big industry, foggy and dirty. And my aunt was ashamed to wash my clothes. She lived in North Carolina where I would finish because they were tattletale gray. The street lights would stay on until noon or all day because it would be so smoggy and dirty. I suffered so from sinus. And my mother, who was very avant-garde, said to me, she said, Vivian, you will never do any good as long as you stay in this Pittsburgh city. You've got to get out. Hewitt did leave Pittsburgh, serving as chief librarian for the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. But I can remember the uh, men not wearing white shirts. They mostly wore blue shirts. And if they had to wear a white one, they'd take it with them and change at work. It was just so, so filthy. But I was born in it and lived in it all my life. Julia Parsons grew up in the city before becoming a codebreaker during World War II, where she worked to solve coded messages sent to and from German submarines. More on that in episode three of the podcast. For many, many years, I was a chain smoker from, I guess I smoked in college a little bit. It was a smart thing to do in those days. I keep thinking living and growing up in Pittsburgh and smoking my husband's the one that had the lung cancer. I didn't. He was from Oklahoma, where the air was clear. And I think of my mother coming from that neat little German village. She must have just been horrified. We all had coal furnaces. There wasn't anything else. Every basement had a coal window and a coal bin. 
And after they delivered it, there'd be grit on all the windowsills and just coal dust everywhere. It was really awful. And I look at it now and I'm just so amazed at Pittsburgh. It's just beautiful. It's so nice. Thanks to the natural gas and the, a few oil furnaces. And they did this. I, I remember them doing it uh, when they cleaned up the city and everybody kept saying, well, we get money to buy a furnace. Furnaces were expensive then. I don't know what they cost, but they're still expensive. But everybody seemed to have managed. They had to. There was no choice. Let's jump ahead to 1966. Dan Maloro, who would go on to found the CMU Activities Board, arrives in Pittsburgh. Here are his first impressions of Carnegie Mellon. So coming to Pittsburgh, you know, with the, there were trolleys going back and forth. Uh, the campus was pretty neat with all the old buildings. Uh, the most modern building was Warner Hall and the Hunt Library. But we took a tour and walking through all the laboratories and going through this computer center, which was Scafe Hall at the time. It was really stimulating. I thought, wow, this is a cool place. Um, there were a lot of... Uh, nerds walking around, <laughs> but at the same time I saw what were very unusual people for me, which was a lot of people dressed in black uh, or dressed in uh, jeans and old shirts, and that was the art students or the drama students back then, they are called dramats. So that eclectic nature of the campus, I, I like the Hunt Library being all aluminum, uh, and I remember those are the things that stood out to me, and the fact that it was in a city. Initially, uh, I didn't like it my first two years. Um, Pittsburgh was dark. Uh, the mills were in full force in Jones and Lachlan. I remember as a freshman, you know, staying up late studying, and in the middle of the night, J&L would open the Coke furnaces, and sometimes the sky would be blood orange, red, and uh, sometimes the wind was blowing the wrong way. You smell the sulfur, and See, there was dust and grit on things back then, in 1966. So the city had no appeal to me at all uh, as in my first two years here. Uh, I really didn't like it that much once I was here, um, but I liked the campus. Well, uh, let's just say you could cut the air with a knife. It was when JNL Steel, I think, was still happening, and it did the the air was not hard. It was hardly breathable. The smell of sulfur. So that, uh, and the, the winters were cold and snowy, but I do remember walking up uh, with some, some lovely dramat gal from, I guess a rehearsal or some such thing. We were walking up by Shenley behind this, this I guess it was by Shenley Park, behind the camp, behind the CFA. And it, it, the snow had fallen and, and the sound was dead. And it was really romantic. The moon, I think, was out. And walking across this snow-laden expanse on the way to where she was staying, one of the Bonavita houses. Bonavita had a bunch of houses that, that were used as, as apartments for us. I stayed in one my senior year. That is Barry Pearl, who you might recognize from his role as duty in the movie Grease. In putting together this podcast, I see that Barry was also on an episode of Murder, She Wrote, so I'll have to consult my Murder, She Wrote box set later today. 
but the, the, like the air, like I said, was hardly breathable. Um, we didn't travel away from campus very much. I remember when we were at the dorms, we went down as far as maybe Craig Street. Street. There was a wonderful Middle Eastern restaurant called Baalabex that had great hummus, and there was a McDonald's there. Uh, so we would go there occasionally, and then up into Shadystein, the gazebo, the deli up there, and the movie theater. I remember seeing five, five Easy Pieces, and I also remember seeing Fantasia for the first time up in that movie theater. Dan Sororik moved to Pittsburgh in January in the early 1970s, in the middle of a typically cold, gray Pittsburgh winter. Well, the first thing is... Uh... We came in January, and there's actually several other faculty members that came to Pittsburgh in January, so obviously they were not coming for the weather. My wife is very insightful. She figured the only exercise I'd ever get would be walking to work. So we got a map, we still got it, took a compass to the one-mile radius and said we'll live inside that radius. And luckily there's a number of very nice walkable neighborhoods in that radius. So it was a very walkable city. We could walk to various things, very compact. Uh, cultural district was up here in Oakland until the early 70s, and then it started moving down to, uh, downtown. But still, that was uh, relatively close. Anytime you go to any cultural event, you're more likely to see some of the movers and shakers in the city, the, the mayor or, or your councilman or something. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the tidy, starting tight end for the Steelers during the four Super Bowl uh, wins in the 70s, lived three doors away. At night, uh, you could actually see the glow from this uh, uh, steel mill blast furnace uh, reflected off the clouds, so it'd be red. Fortunately, we didn't get too much of the odor because it tended to be contained in the valleys where the steel mills were. But by mid-1970s, the steel mills in the city limit had been uh, uh, shut down, so the air got perceptibly uh, cleaner because of that. This is another excerpt from our interview with Vivian Davidson Hewitt, speaking about the racism she faced at Carnegie Tech, and more generally in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, I referred to as way down south, up north, and was very racist. My experiences are seared into the brain. You remember them, but I don't focus on them. I am a positive, optimistic person, and I think of the glass as half full rather than half empty. I never will forget my interview with Ralph Munn, who was the dean of the library school at that time. He said, I'm more sorry than I can say that you don't look more like a Negro than you do, so that when people walk into the library, they'll know exactly what you are. Can you imagine? But that was the times. It was the period of the times. My colleagues in Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh were wonderful to me. It was the city that was racist. I was asked to leave the restaurant 
the Bar City Restaurant at Craig Street and Center Avenue and not to come back. A white couple had protested my being there. So when I went to pay my bill, the manager or the owner of the restaurant said, don't come back. And uh, I'm an Aquarian, so I never know how I'm going to react or what I'm going to say. And I sounded off. I said, our men are fighting in war for the likes of you and for democracy and all. How dare you ask me not to come back? And it so happened that the man standing next back of me said, if you don't serve her, I won't come back. And I will tell my friends not to come back. And it just happened to be a professor from the University of Pittsburgh. And they're decent white people and good white people, no matter what or where. But the city was really vilely racist. Pittsburgh in the 1970s was not a congenial place to be. I want to put this as, as accurately as possible. The steel industry was closing. Everybody, no, everybody didn't know that. Most people thought, this is just a hiccup. Steel will come back to what it once was. Pittsburgh will come back to what it once was and everything will be fine. Well, that was not going to be. This is Pamela McCordick. She documented early artificial intelligence research in the 1970s. You can read more about it in her book, Machines Who Think, a personal inquiry into the history and prospects of artificial intelligence. Those people with vision here, and I include the then president of Carnegie Mellon, Richard Seyert, Herb Simon, a handful of other people said, we're gonna do something different in Pittsburgh. We're going to green Pittsburgh. And in 1972, 73, this was a, a radical idea, very radical. Okay. Meanwhile, you could go through fine places in Pittsburgh and find slag heaps in the middle of the road because, or on vacant lots because nobody thought they were worth removing. Uh, the warehouses, which are now full of high tech, they were left to rust because nobody thought it was worth tearing them down. It was, as I say, not a congenial place. And the promise of greening seemed to me to be so far away. I just didn't think I wanted to spend my life here. And I remember waking up one morning. We had a house in Squirrel Hill by that time. Waking up one morning and thinking, my parents did not get me out of Liverpool, England to bring me to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> there was a, a group called ASH. I forget what, A-S-H. It was the precursor of the clean air movement. If memory serves, it was formed by moms, women who were concerned about the health of their children, about the clean air. I don't believe it started in Pittsburgh, but I think the Pittsburgh chapter was one of the strongest in the country because of what the air quality was like here. So now you had people living in Pittsburgh 
who were challenging the biggest employers in Pittsburgh, the steel mills. That was unbelievable. I mean, you had the steel workers saying, you want to do what? Shut our mills down? That's my job. My father worked in the mill. I work in the mill. My son's going to work in the mill. What are you doing? And that was, that was a big change, too. You had people now, young families, saying, you're killing us. You're killing our children. And the pressure for the mills to, to shut down or to clean their act up, which would have been unbelievably expensive. So that was the whole atmosphere, not only on campus, but outside of campus, too. Despite the pollution, Pittsburgh has its charms. Some might call them frustrations. Here is Sherry Nichols. The other thing I remember about living in Pittsburgh is this was in the days before GPS, and Pittsburgh is challenging to navigate. <laughs> you sort of memorize paths to get from place to place, because, you know, I got lost all the time. I, I, you know, I lived here for five years, and I still get lost in Shinley Park. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thought of living in New York just appalls me. So many people love it there, but I, you know, yard, I, a grass is nice. <laughs> I, I like having grass around. So um, it, it's just the atmosphere of the university and the, and the call and the town. Pittsburgh's a nice town. That's Barbara Anderson. She worked as a costume designer for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and on six films with George Romero, including Night Riders, Creepshow, and Day of the Dead. I mean, the nice thing about Pittsburgh is that you can get all kinds of scenes. You know, you can have all kinds of locations. Sometimes you look like you're a big city and sometimes it looks like you're out in the country and you can get there pretty fast. We'll close out this episode of the podcast with Joe Trotter, Giant Eagle University Professor of History and Social Justice. He is also founder and director of CMU's Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy, or CAUSE. Joe arrived at Carnegie Mellon in the mid-1980s. You know, I grew up in West Virginia, so in some ways I was just very attracted to the natural beauty of this city. You know, the trees, the mountains, the hills, it just felt like home in a way, and that I was coming home in some ways. Even though coal mining towns is far cry from the city of Pittsburgh, it still had that flavor for me. And when I touched down in the plane coming into Pittsburgh, just looking at the terrain, uh, very attractive uh, on, that, on that score. But then the actual uh, neighborhoods and the destructive impact of deindustrialization and the rusting out of the uh, big homestead works and the way these small mill town communities were suffering and the way even major buildings on the CMU campus were shut, covered, you know, from years and years of smoke. It was not a pretty environment. So what year was it that you started here at the university? 1985. And that is the year, in a way, that began, that whole bottoming out of the steel industry was about 1985 to 1990. That seemed like the rock bottom. 
And so we were coming at a time when this, the whole downturn was in full swing. And I think even then people had started to think the steel industry is not coming back. I think Carnegie Mellon President Richard Sire started to play a role in this redevelopment effort, you know, trying to really shift Pittsburgh away from the old, you know, structure into a new one uh, that had to do with energy and computers, health sciences, health services. Yeah, so I think I came when it was bottoming out. And I've been here since then, and I've seen tremendous transformation of the environment and the economy, all of that. That whole set of um, new buildings with high tech, you know, where the steel, Jones and Laughlin, other companies used to be, and then the redevelopment of the waterfront, where that big steel plant was, all of those things signal that, you know, the city's a different place today than it was 30 years ago, plus. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time you tune in, we'll be hearing more from Dan Maloro about the origins of CMU's Activities Board. It's a fun episode. See you next time. Cut Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University. All oral histories are available within the university archives housed in the Carnegie Mellon University Libraries.